Welcome to our best of CBA podcasts on mental health in the legal profession on The Every Lawyer. I'm Julia Tetrault-Provencher. Register now for the CBA Wellbeing Conference in Toronto on November 7th, 2023 at cba.org. This is The Every Lawyer, presented by the Canadian Bar Association. Not that it wasn't on our radars before, but the COVID pandemic, which began in December 2019 and officially ended in May 2023, put mental health squarely in the mainstream. Thanks in part to many of the voices you will hear in this episode, the stigma surrounding mental health in the legal profession, which is considerable given that we trade in mental equity, is being removed. In 2022, the Federation of Law Societies, the CBA, and the University of Sherbrooke released their report on the National Study on the Psychological Health Determinants of Legal Professionals in Canada. Extensive and comprehensive, it provides the facts and numbers that back up what we have all intuited for a while now. Legal professionals face alarming rates of mental distress. In this episode, you will hear from, back to front, Glenn Hickerson, Sanya Chaudhry, Eve Faggy, editor of the CBA National Magazine, in conversation with Jason Ward, former Ontario Chief Justice George R. Strathy, former CBA President Stephen Rothstein, in conversation with the Honorable Justice Mahmoud Jamal of the Supreme Court of Canada, as well as the Honorable Justice Michelle Hollins of the Court of King's Bench, Alberta, and the author of the report from the University of Sherbrooke, Dr. Nathalie Cadieux. Thank you so much. It's a real pleasure for me to have the occasion to share with practitioners the results of this uh, incredible research program. Incredible is the word. I agree with that. Can I ask you, uh, so it's a very broad question, but a bit of the executive summary, I would say, of this report for those who haven't had the chance yet to read it, but I'm sure they will after that interview. But uh, in general, how is our health? That's a great question. And <laughs> uh, I thank you for that question. I have a short answer, but also a more expensive answer for you. If I start with the short one, I would say that the answer to that question would certainly not be very good or I would say bad. But I think that short answer deserves more nuance and also at least some support from some of the key indicators that we have measured in this study. So we found the proportion of psychological distress was around 59% which is still very high. And we also, we looked at the same findings uh, for burnout. Uh, we, we found about uh, 56% of uh, burnout in the legal uh, profession, uh, 29% of depressive symptoms with the proportion of uh, professional with uh, moderate to severe uh, symptoms and 36% of anxiety at a worrying uh, level and uh, 24% of professionals, so almost uh, one in four professionals who have had a suicidal thoughts during their professional practice, which is really high, unfortunately. 
I, I was uh, I was really surprised when I saw the barriers for a professional to getting help. The barriers are numerous, and yet we see that the resources are sometimes handmade for the professionals. And when I talk about barriers, uh, there are all the informational barriers. People don't uh, have access to information about their assistance program, don't remember where they should go, don't know the services that are related to their assistance program, or think that their problem is not enough important, uh, it will pass. And on the other end, we have many barriers related to stigma associated with mental health problems in the legal community. And like many other high performance environment, in the study we measured personal stigma and perceived stigma in the profession. So professionals were first asked to answer uh, the full, uh, some question about what do you think about people in your uh, about people uh, who experience uh, some psychological distress in their practice of law. And we have the same question to professionals related to what do you think that people in your profession think about, about this? And what do you think the perception gap is? The gap is just over 40 persons. That's huge. And this gap is related to the fact that few professionals have a negative perception of professionals or colleagues who experience mental health issues during their practice. But many perceive that people in their profession have a negative perception of mental health issues. And there is a significant gap between the perception in the profession and the actual perception of people. And there is no reason for this barrier, nothing at all other than a lack of communication about health, and it is based on individual beliefs fueled by a lack of collective communication related to mental health. So we have to talk about it in all settings and raise awareness and break down taboos. So that was Dr. Nathalie Cadieux from the University of Sherbrooke. We continue now with the Honorable Justice Michelle Hollins. Justice Hollins has done a lot in terms of raising awareness about mental health, not least by speaking openly about her own struggle with depression. I asked her what she thought about the joint report shortly after it came out. I think the two things that really jumped out at you was, first of all, how, how again, how clearly the researchers were able to correlate the experience of anxiety, depression, and burnout to particular factors. And of course, I would narrow in on what they called quantitative overload and its relationship to the billable hour system that at least in private practice, most firms still use. I just think that even though it's it's shockingly black and white, even though it is completely unsurprising to see that correlation. We have talked about the billable hour system as feeding this monster for years. I saw in the report that the ABA, the American Bar Association, called the uh, billable hour corrosive 20 years ago, in 2002. So for 20 years, we have known that this is a significant contributing factor to the mental illness that is experienced by so many of our professionals. But that was one thing. And the second thing I would say that was really jumped out at me, and again, confirming something that I think most of us know intuitively, but again, to see it in black and white is really helpful, is the disproportionate impact of these things 
um, and the disproportionate experience of depression, anxiety, and burnout in identifiable groups, particularly young lawyers was the one that really stood out to me. But um, women, Indigenous uh, people of color, LGBTQ lawyers, and disabled lawyers, um, you know, it, it makes perfect sense. But again, I think there is just huge value in having those those conclusions laid out the way they are. Uh, do you think it's something that the profession doesn't really want to hear? Is there anything that you think is very, you know, it, it stays like that because people don't want to look at it? And um, do you think this report will be a way to maybe change that culture that we couldn't do 20 years ago? Um, well, perhaps. I mean, that's the hope. You know, I think, uh, well, first of all, in addition to the data, I do want to encourage everyone to read the testimonials that are included through this report. I just think they're so compelling. You just, you're not going to experience or you're not going to um, absorb everything that this report has to tell you if, you if you don't listen to those individual voices. But I think the part of the story that the profession doesn't want to hear is that the solutions largely lay within the profession itself. There are absolutely things we can do as individuals, and I have talked about those. I've tried to practice those. And certainly, even in this report, there are recommendations, there are suggestions for how we can uh, take better care of ourselves and be more proactive with our own mental health. And that is important. But, um, you know, we can't, if young lawyers can't just change the global hour system by themselves. Uh, that's going to lie with the organizations and the corporations and the private firms and the government departments that have structured the work in such a way that quantitative overload is almost impossible to avoid. That was some of my conversation with the Honorable Justice Michelle Hollins of King's Bench, Alberta. We continue with the Honorable Justice Mahmoud Jamal of the Supreme Court of Canada, who in the summer of 2022 spoke to then-CBA President Stephen Rothstein. I want to talk to you about another one of the priorities I have as CBA president this year, and it's talking about mental health and wellness. It's a huge issue within the legal profession. It's truthfully a huge issue within Canadian society as a whole. Um, and there's a lot of taboos about around mental health that continue to this day. The pandemic has had a silver lining. Perhaps it's that it's helped raise awareness of this issue. So I'm just wondering your thoughts on how we can kind of remove some of the taboos surrounding mental health in the legal profession. Well, I think we can look to the example of former Justice Clément Gascon and uh, Chief Justice Stravi when leaders of the profession speak openly about their own struggles and about their family struggles, I think it normalizes the fact that there is uh, pervasive mental illness, not only in the legal profession, but in, in society. Mental health is something that we should all be concerned about, whether or not we suffer from mental illness. And so I think people in in senior positions in the legal profession, talking about it openly, without stigma, with understanding, with compassion, and seeking to educate, it's enormously important. I'm sure you saw the article in the newspaper last week. Yeah. Things like that are enormously important. And the speeches that Chief Justice Strathy has given have been powerful. And similarly with former Justice Gascon's openness about his own experiences, I think it's enormously important and normalizing of the fact that it is normal to struggle with mental health issues. It doesn't mean you can't be an active, high-performing member of the legal profession or the judiciary. So I think that's that's been watershed in our profession anyway. People of that caliber speaking about these issues 
are uh, important. Yeah, just for the benefit of our listeners, the article that you're referring to was a Globe and Mail article, which interviewed Justice Strathy and uh, former OBA president Orlando Da Silva, among others, talking about mental health and wellness within the legal profession. And I think the headline or one of the comments that resonated with people was obviously Justice Strathy talking about lawyers and we need to get past the gladiator mentality. A visual, I think we all can get a sense of what that looks like. So yeah, I'm hoping that that article, as well as obviously our conversation today and the words that Justice um, Gascon has uh, has said on his his challenges with mental health do resonate and people realize that they're they're not alone and uh, they shouldn't be ashamed and they should seek seek the help uh, that they need. You know, mental health is not just mental health, it's just about wellness and about gaining perspective. And I'm wondering, you you obviously throughout your career have had difficult cases, uh, some you won, and as you mentioned, some you learned from, but you lost. Um, how how did you kind of regain focus from whatever happened and, and uh, prepare for the next challenge? I, I think everybody has their techniques to try and move on from a loss to the next case. It helps to be busy when you're in practice because then you have another client's uh, problem or another client's case to address. So I think trying to put it in perspective and moving on to the next challenge. At the end of the day though, you know, the more time you spend on a case and the more you invest of yourself in the case, I think the reality is the longer it's going to take to overcome a loss. That was certainly my experience. If I, I had cases where I spent over a decade litigating an issue and then losing. And if you think you're going to get over a loss like that in a week or a few weeks, well, that wasn't my experience. It takes months, if not more, to overcome that. But I think, you know, time, perspective, exercise, frankly, helps with your sense of well-being, being outdoors, a loving family, time with family and friends, all those things, I think, help put things into a, a longer time frame and give you perspective. But at the end of the day, you have to move on. And it isn't a personal failing. If you put your best into the case, if you put your best into everything you do, that's all you can really ask. And that's all your clients can ask of you. Um, just along this topic, and you talked earlier in, in our conversation about imposter syndrome, but I'm wondering how you, uh, you mentioned hard work and preparation, and maybe that's the answer, but, you know, how, how have you dealt with any self-doubts that you've had throughout your career? If you've had any, <laughs> um, well, how do you rise above it? Well, the most important thing is, is endurance. I mean, you've got to still be standing like the lines from the Elton John song, you've got to still be standing at the end of the day. So you've got to just endure. I mean, I, I tell law students that I thought about dropping out of law school in my first year because I thought it was too hard. I didn't know if I had the wherewithal to, you know, to do the 100% final exams at the end of the year. So, you know, lots of people feel that and it's normal to feel that. But at the end of the day, you've just got to keep going. But I think many challenges, at least in my, my experience, can be overcome those sorts of challenges anyway can be overcome just by working hard, just doing your best. At the end of the day, if you do your best and you put your most into the task uh, and into the role, then then you can't, uh, you can't be too hard on yourself if you didn't measure up to your own standard. I mean, the article that you mentioned from the Globe and Mail talked about, uh, I think it was Chief Justice Strathy or maybe it was Justice Gascon talking about the pernicious effect of perfectionism. Well, 
it's a great strength of lawyers to be perfectionists, but it's also a great weakness. And so finding that balance and finding how to wrestle with the demons of perfectionism is something that we're all challenged to deal with. So I think at the end of the day, you just do your best and just work hard. I mean, I think that's been my experience. And as I said, that's the advice of Baroness Hale as well. One of my favorite interviews in this series was with the former Chief Justice Ontario, George R. Strathy. Mr. Strathy will be one of the keynote speakers at the upcoming CBA conference on well-being in Toronto. I'm so sorry. For our French speaker, it's very difficult. So I'll say that again. Thank you so much for joining us today, Chief Justice Strathy. Uh, and uh, Well, yeah. You got it absolutely right, but I'm not Chief Justice. <laughs> I'm not Chief Justice anymore. So, so uh, oh, okay, so Chief Justice <laughs> or, or Mr. Strathy is fine, but whatever. You got the pronunciation parfait. So let's jump in right away. Has a discussion on mental health in the legal profession been overdue for a long time? Do you think it's something that should have happened? Before the, the short answer to your question is yes, uh, it, it is overdue, and yes, it should have happened a long time ago. I think the reason why it hasn't happened is due to the stigma that is attached to mental health or mental illness in our society and and in the legal profession, and I think the effect of stigma is that people are, are quite frankly, afraid to talk about the subject, uh, afraid to, to bring their own experiences to the front, and afraid because they fear that, that if they disclose their mental health challenges, that they will be seen to be unable to do the job of a lawyer, seen to uh, unable to withstand the stress of, of lawyering, will not get good work in their law firm, will not get promoted, will be regarded as, as unreliable and, and uh, won't, won't advance in the profession. And I think the, the key thing, or one of the key things I think that is happening now is that people are starting to talk about mental health in the profession. And, and by doing so, and by, by some leaders of the profession coming forward and talking about the subject, we are destigmatizing mental illness and I hope encouraging an open dialogue so that people can get help. Yeah, definitely. And I kind of feel like you're uh, one of the first, I mean, as a leader, you know, in the profession to really open up and talk about it. I mean, there has been other people. We have interviewed Justice Holland uh, as well. But it's so great to see also that you opened up and also um, what, what actually moved you uh, to publish your article and to speak to us today. Like what, what was the... The key factor. I, well, there are a couple of things. Um, one is, as you've said, uh, some leaders of the profession have come forward uh, to share their own experiences. So, for example, former Supreme Court of Canada Judge Clément Gascon has spoken of his own experiences with mental illness. I was inspired by Orlando da Silva, 
a former president of the Ontario Bar Association speaking about his challenges, and a very senior lawyer at the Ministry of the Attorney General, Beth Beatty, uh, has spoken about her challenges. What got me speaking about it initially was back in 19, or 2021, when Beth Beatty and the treasurer of the Law Society of Ontario, Teresa Donnelly, sponsored a mental health summit in, in Ontario uh, for the Law Society, by the Law Society. And I was asked whether I would speak at the summit and do kind of an introductory uh, remarks to welcome everyone. And what I said when I was asked to do that was I, I wanted to think about it for a while because I knew that if I was going to speak at an event like that, I needed to speak about my mother's own challenges with, with uh, bipolar illness. And I, I did speak that year at the summit in 2021 about my mother's experiences and our family's experiences with our mother's mental health. Um, a, a mental illness that was with her essentially all her life from the time I was a young child until she died many, many years later. So that that prompted me to start speaking about about mental illness. And and the my paper in 2022 in, entitled The Litigator in Mental Health was kind of a second step in, in the same direction. Uh, all with a view to getting the discussion going and and out in the open. And I feel like uh, what you say in your in your article kind of also links to uh, what the, the findings in the report. Because when we were talking with Dr. Cardi last uh, last week, um, uh, she said that one of the findings is that the culture uh, in the legal profession is a lot a lot about you know being uh, a gladiator, as you say in your article. And it's you don't want to show uh, the people you know this this idea that you will be uh, people will judge you or that they will not trust you. Um, and you say, so in your article, you mention a gladiator and lawyer. And uh, then, you know, if you Google that, it's not something we usually hear. But then I kind of feel like it goes together. I felt like I, I had already heard that, but probably not. It's just the feeling that we might have sometimes that it's really how we feel at, like gladiators. Could you tell us a bit more about the myth of the gladiator, the gladiator litigator? That's how you call it, where it comes from and why it's so important that we finally let go of it. Thanks very much. I, 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 um, I might just add a commercial message of my own. And that is, yeah, <laughs> please do. <laughs> that, that paper is available along with the paper I wrote about my mother's mental health challenges. That's available on the website of the Court of Appeal for Ontario under the section about the court. And then there's a, a section on publication. So that's where your your listeners can find it if they need to find it. But let me say that in the paper, I mentioned that the myth of the gladiator litigator is not unique to litigation. It's, it's embedded in the legal profession itself, and it affects all lawyers, whether they're litigators, commercial lawyers, estates and family lawyers, real estate lawyers, everyone is affected by what I, I see as a destructive and harmful myth that we are invincible, that we uh, can suck it up, that we can uh, power through uh, working long days and nights, and we never talk about it. We just keep it to ourselves 
and and heal our own wounds and rely on ourselves. And I think it it it's it's harmful because it it creates a model that that some lawyers, particularly younger lawyers, feel they have to aspire to, and and they somehow also feel um, that that if they don't meet this model, uh, they're less than a good lawyer. And uh, the truth is, and what I try to say in the paper, all of us, uh, even experienced litigators, and I did litigation all my, all my career of 30 years of practice, all of us feel nervous and apprehensive about going to court. All of us uh, perspire, our hands shake, our stomachs grumble. Uh, it's a natural feeling. And, and it's also, it's not healthy to keep it bottled up inside. It's, 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 it's healthy to talk about it and realize that other people are affected by it. I, I think the other thing that, that's terribly destructive about the myth is that it leads people to think that they have to work ridiculous hours. They have to you know, the, ignore the other important things in their lives, like, like family and rest and recreation. And it, it encourages a culture that, that makes us disposed to become workaholics, whether, as I say, whether we're litigators or others. And, and um, you know, workaholism goes along with other isms and other unhealthy habits. For example, obviously, uh, too much alcohol, which is a significant problem in, in, in our profession, as the, as the Université de Sherbrooke's uh, study indicates. So, um, I, I, as I say in my paper, I think um, we have to recognize that, that in a sense that mental health is something we all have. It's something we all have to look after our own mental health. And, and getting rid of the stigma, talking about it, putting it out in the open is a big step towards that. We come now to Eve Faggy's conversation on modern law with Toronto lawyer Jason Ward, who very nearly lost it all. Jason's story is a cautionary tale that will tell you exactly why you need to take your mental health seriously. So... You, you practiced for several years, civil litigator with you know, a strong reputation in your area of practice. You know, how did you first realize that you were beginning to struggle perhaps with certain mental health issues? Looking back, I think some of the key signs uh, that I now understand are my life uh, started to become uh, much more organized and it had to be organized. So including at home, uh, I became much more autocratic in my home. I have three teenage children. Uh, I became very task-oriented, uh, more rigid in the way I was behaving both at work and at home. Um, eventually, that developed into a certain level of resentment um, with work. So, for example, uh, my policy in my practice was no matter what time of day or night it is, if you email me, you will always hear back from me within minutes. Um, and I did that for most of my career, including, you know, whatever 11 o'clock at night. And I started to quietly uh, resent that. And that resentment kind of grew over time. So at some point for me, I became a bit of a despot, uh, both at work 
with my associate lawyers and at my home with my own family, which I had awareness of and I knew I was doing. Uh, but it it was really an unstoppable freight train at that point. When was the onset of this? Would you say uh, you know you say you're a two thousand year call? When when did this? start manifesting itself in more acute ways? I think it materialized really for me at the age of 45. Uh, Up until that point, I had not really used alcohol at all. Uh, I was, was, you know, a drinker maybe two or three times a year, um, often not to excess, uh, very much a social drinker. Alcohol was not part of my life. I didn't keep alcohol in the home. Uh, My wife didn't really consume alcohol. And then again, something happened to me at age 45. Uh, I happened to have been on a Southern Caribbean vacation and I discovered uh, rum and Coke. And starting on that trip, uh, I started to all of a sudden drink excessively. Uh, I recognized it and felt it to be a release and a relief. Uh, And that happened for me immediately. And that developed or progressed from drinking uh, you know, being drunk on vacation most of the time. And then it crept back and found its way into my uh, home here in Ontario where I started to drink. Uh, and then it just got out of control and I started drinking uncontrolled. You were talking about also, you know, th- this idea that you're you're behaving a bit like a despot at work or in the family. And this this coincides with the, with the alcohol and the drinking or, or was that there before? No, I, I think... Uh, you know, whether I had addiction issues before my life and I just suppressed them uh, successfully, I'm not entirely sure about that. But certainly whatever um, underlying issues I had materialized and took control uh, probably in my early 40s and progressed to mid 40s where alcohol uh, became a real factor in my life. Were there other earlier warning signs that you might have missed? that something was amiss? Um, I don't think so. I, I, you know, regrettably for me, I'm an all or nothing guy, uh, including when it came to my cases and the law. Uh, I was also very, uh, I think, business driven as, as in addition to being um, striving to be the best lawyer I could. So a lot of my focus was also on how do I build and maximize this law firm, uh, which now has gone from zero to the second largest in central Ontario. Uh, And I did a lot to promote the business, promote myself. I was an incessant uh, self-promoter for much of my career uh, and had no qualms or shames about that because I rationalized it as I'm building a brand. I'm building a business which which continually expanded. Um, So for me, I think really there was a real confluence of things that came together in a perfect storm right around my mid-40s. Where, um, whereas I'd historically been very controlled, uh, I, you know, I don't really have a lot of other issues in my life that I can't control or that I think I can't control. And all of a sudden I was having these issues and, and, and feelings and thoughts that, that I just couldn't manage anymore. Did you notice the, the reaction of your colleagues and coworkers to some of what was going on? We're talking about four or five years ago. Am I correct? Am I in my timeline? Yeah, I'm. I'm. Uh, I'm fifty. I'm just fifty-one now. Okay. And so, what, what what was the reaction of your colleagues? They didn't say anything to me. They didn't let on like they believed. Uh, they realized I was having an issue or a problem. Uh, certainly, my immediate family did. Uh, they were well aware uh, and seeing what was going on with me. Um, and just to be clear, you do uh, share this room with, with your spouse. Yes. 
Yes. Uh, I have a very supportive spouse who's also a lawyer and who now uh, continues on with the firm uh, that, that I started and we built together. Uh, she's been very supportive and she was always very aware of what was going on. And frankly, I, was, I, I had pretty good open dialogue with her about what was going on uh, until maybe towards the end when I hit about 49, closer to 50, where I started to be less communicative about uh, what I was experiencing. How did you cope with all these? I mean, it's, you know, you're running a firm, you're building a firm, you're building a brand, you're running your own practice. I mean, just that, I could ask you, how did you cope with just that? Uh, uh, but you're managing people, uh, you've got a family, I, you have three teenage children is, is also something else to deal with and, and manage and grow as well. Uh, how do you cope with all that while managing a mental health issue? Uh, I think the more my issues happened, the more I got, the more extreme I got. So a good example is during COVID, uh, when everybody was working from home, I, I worked at the office. But for some reason, I took it upon myself to be um, this public informer about COVID and all things COVID. So every day I would come in and I would write five to 10 blogs per day on all the things that were going on that I thought my community should know about. Uh, and this took off. Uh, it gained a very wide audience uh, in my area, in my region. Uh, it became a very popular go-to source. And, you know, at the end of the day, I was given an award by the city for being a, the COVID hero. Um, but all the while, uh, I wasn't coping well at all, and that translated into do more, do more, uh, try to garner more recognition, try to be more publicly known, uh, and that's how um, my behavior um, sort of paralleled my, my addictions and my problems. And so what happened ultimately? Ultimately, uh, you know, I don't like to use the term burnout because I, I don't think that's a medical term. Um, but at age 48 and a half, uh, I stopped drinking and that was not easy for me. Uh, up to that point, uh, an example of the volume that I was drinking would be, um, I, you know, there's a restaurant, a beautiful Italian restaurant in Lindsay. Uh, and I happen to know the owner. And at that point, that owner would deliver to my porch once per week, uh, 24 bottles of nice red wine. And every Monday he would do this. And every Monday I would be out and need more. And that was in addition to the rum and Cokes that I would start with uh, generally uh, after work. My day started to go shorter. So I'd start coming home earlier uh, because I could start drinking earlier. I was always fairly good about not, not drinking while working, at least at the office. Uh, so I wasn't a day drinker per se, but, you know, I started to come home at 3 or 3.30 primarily because that's when I wanted to start to drink. I then realized I had a very big problem and my wife intervened and we decided that the only option for me was sobriety. Um, I, I disguised it in my own mind as this would be a temporary step. Uh, I would temporarily be sober. Once I could show I had it under control, I could return to manage drinking. Uh, and that's how I got to the point of being able to stop, was tricking myself into thinking that. Uh, I then hired a sober coach uh, in Toronto who specializes in working with professionals who have addiction issues, particularly alcohol and drugs. 
Uh, and I went sober in the summer of uh, two, 2000. So just, just after COVID started. The problem I had is when I went so, and I've successfully been sober since then. The problem I, the problem I have is I kept working. Uh, I turned it up a notch and I couldn't be without mind altering experience. So I had never done drugs in my life. I had smoked maybe one joint as a young person in my teenage years. And all of a sudden, I found myself buying a lot of uh, THC pills. So not smoking drugs, not, you know, not doing lines, but you can buy the pills that are just concentrated THC. And, you know, they're about 10 milligrams per pill. And that generally is enough to get somebody moderately high. Uh, and after I stopped drinking, I discovered this and all of a sudden I was going into my recently, uh, legalized cannabis store once per day. And I found myself walking around with a pocket of about 30 or 40 of these pills a day that would all be gone by the time I went to bed. So, you know, the average person probably uses 10 to 20 milligrams of THC to get high. Uh, I was, I eventually started using up to 35 to 40 milligrams a day um, to the point where uh, I couldn't remember the night before when I woke up in the morning with no hangover, mind you. Um, but I just substituted THC uh, for the alcohol. Can I ask, what is it that you were escaping from? I just turned my mind off. It just numbed my mind. I wasn't, uh, you know, I had a rule in my practice that, you know, I wouldn't go home unless my inbox was empty that day. And, you know, you know how many emails lawyers get in a day. Um, and my rule was, I'm going to stay here and finish until I get all, and nothing can be my inbox. That was part of my, you've done a good job today. You can go home and reward yourself. Um, that went away. Uh, thinking about cases and clients all the time went away. Worrying about what others were doing at the business or, you know, what I had in court the next day or was I prepared or not? Should I do some more research before? All that went away with alcohol. And all of a sudden, I just found myself in a nice, quiet uh, place where I and I was not a conversationalist when I drank. I, I was one of those guys or people who uh, sort of went insular uh, while drinking. So it wasn't a loud, boisterous exercise. It was a very quiet exercise. And, and I just found this is peace. This is tranquility. This is quiet. I really like uh, what I'm doing right now. So you're, you're really kind of getting away from the deadlines and, and the callbacks and the, the responses that are expected of you. Yeah, I, I think it gave me, uh, you know, it gave me an escape hatch to Jason, you have to be and be perceived to be the best all of the time. Yeah. Always on call. Always on call, always on show, always be, uh, you know, be that public personality, be that leader amongst, you know, your local colleagues, be the best of the best. All of that got turned off by rum for me. And, and that was, that was for me a life-changing event. And so ultimately you did have to walk away from the law or walk away from law practice. I did. I, I, I worked, I hired a psychiatrist uh, who I worked with three times a week, uh, 45 minute sessions, three times a week for a year. Uh, I worked very hard with that psychiatrist to try to regain control and try to stay in my profession. Uh, so I put a major investment into, you know, I can't leave. I'm only 50. Uh, you know, I've got bills to pay. I've got teenage kids. I, 
I own this big firm. I, there's no way I can walk away from this. Um, I worked on that for a year to try to stay. Um, the drugs got worse for me. They got heavier and worse. Uh, I worked with my sober coach during that entire time, but that was mostly focused on alcohol sobriety. And eventually it got to the point uh, in early, in late last year where I was just, I was just, uh, you know, uh, automaton. I was, you know, I was high all the time. Uh, Even at work, I started getting high in the afternoon. Uh, I couldn't wait till I got home. I'd start popping my THC pills, you know, at one o'clock instead of 3.30 when I got home. And it got so out of control that, you know, I couldn't, in the evenings, I had trouble communicating with my family. Uh, I had trouble keeping up. I was, I was just high all of the time. And eventually my wife said to me, we're done here. You, you've, you've got to do something. This can't continue. So I quietly uh, announced that I was going to be retiring from the law and I would like to run for mayor of, of my municipality. And I left abruptly and I went to rehab. I went on a 30-day stint in a great, great immersive place in Montreal to try to get control because at that time, my drug use had escalated. And I, re- I realized then that I was heading into, you know, even more dangerous waters with, you know, with heavier drugs that I was coveting and, uh, and, and, and starting to use. And I knew, I knew that would be the end of me. I knew uh, if I let that continue, uh, A, I probably wouldn't live much longer. Uh, and B, I'd certainly lose my family and probably, probably my, my, my finances by that point. And so when was, this, when was this decision to go to Montreal? That was in February of this year. And so you haven't really returned to the office in a meaningful way since then? I have not. And, uh, and in fact, I find it very difficult. Uh, you know, but before I went to rehab, leading up to the end of the last year, uh, I mean, I own a firm in Lindsay and it's a, it's a large building. I would, uh, I would sit in my F-150 pickup truck outside the office on average for an hour every morning working up my ability to go into the office and face the day. And that happened for about a year. What were you afraid of? I just couldn't go in and deal with it. I just didn't want to deal with it. I resented it. Uh, I, you know, I experienced tremendous physical symptoms. So I, I had lots of headaches all of the time. Uh, it got to the point for me that, you know, before I went to rehab, when I would get a work-related email at night, uh, I felt physically sick. Uh, and I had often had issues of, you know, I'd get an email from a client on a problem or an issue, and I, I, I vomited because it got so bad for me that I couldn't process anything, I couldn't receive anything, uh, and I, I started to just delegate excessively. Was there an employee assistance program in, in your firm? Um, interestingly enough, um, I appointed, I created uh, something called uh, a mental health first aid officer. I did that about two years ago when I went sober. And that person's role at the firm is to be a go-to person for mental health assistance and help. And they sort of direct a person to various resources that are out there that they need to get help. Uh, I think this was a relatively new thing for lawyers to be doing at the time. Um, maybe now there's a little more of it, 
but I can remember encouraging other lawyers locally to to do this, and you know, there it just fell on deaf ears. There was really no reception to it at all. So, if you, Jason, were were suddenly face to face with a younger you, it doesn't have to be you, you, but a, you know, a, a younger, eager, hungry young litigator entering the profession, you know, what would you what would you tell them? You know, that's. I, I'm really, I'm having, I'm struggling these days with that very issue that you've raised, Eve, because it's a conundrum for me. Because on the one hand, I'm here talking to you about, you know, forced exit from the profession because of mental health and burnout. And on the other hand, I'm thinking to myself, if I was a young Jason Ward who just just got into Western law school, um, I'm not sure I'd do it another way or, or that I'd, I'd be capable of doing it another way. Unless someone intervened and told me I had to do it another way. It's just the way it's done. It's just, it's just the way uh, I did it. And, and to your point earlier is, you know, lawyers are individuals and it's going to be an individualized experience. There's so much latitude and room for lawyers to do whatever they want in their profession, you know, subject to some, some, some bylaws and guidelines at the law society about what you, you can and can't do with some things. But by and large, um, we're not regulated. We're not, we're regulated financially. You know, we're regulated in terms of our practice behavior, uh, but not on everything, mind you. Um, but we're not really that regulated. And because of that, I think there's a lot of space and room for lawyers to, uh, you know, move ahead in life in ways that are deleterious for their own mental health. And no one's telling them that. No one's no one's stopping them and saying, "Are you sure you want, you know, are you sure this is the way you want to go? What about these other options?" Or if you do have a problem, here are some resources that I can get you with right now. Right? And and that's and that's what I had to struggle with when I needed help is I I I couldn't call someone and say I couldn't call my colleagues because again, I perceived that as, you know, weakness and losing comparative advantage. Not that I wasn't prepared to tell my colleagues I was having mental health issues. I, I'm okay with that. I, I could have done that. But I wasn't prepared to lose what I thought to be um, strength in the marketplace, including with my colleagues. At the same time, when you talk about that space that lawyers have to chart their own path, I suppose, a little bit individually, that there is something a little hopeful in that. Is there not that you know a new generation of lawyers can start to put their foot down about some of these things. And I, I think realistically, I think they are beginning to do that and saying, you know, listen, I just, I'm not signed up for this 12 to 14 hour day, every day, six days a week. Do you see anything there? Yeah, I, I agree with you. I think, I think this generation of lawyers within the last five years is taking a different view on the practice of law. I think they recognize that the profession itself can, can have these inherent, um, issues that, that can be harmful. Uh, and I think they are pushing back. I, I don't disagree with you. Um, but the, who, it, it's in a very unorganized way. It's on, it's on an individual one-off basis. And I, I struggle to think about how we're going to affect enterprise-wide change for the benefit of everyone if, if, this, is, if this is how change comes about. Because frankly, uh, it's going to take a generation to outgrow uh, the way we practice now because the people that own firms like me, um, even though I'm a progressive lawyer with uh, you know, a very strong, I, I very strongly believe in work-life balance, 
at the end of the day, when that young articling student is leaving at 4.30 every day and detaching, I, I'm starting to ask questions. Right? Because because that's not good for business. And, you know, so there's 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 that aspect of it as well is is there's that there's always going to be that pressure uh, until these until a younger generation of lawyers completely takes over with their own principles and, and, and policies on how they want to operate. It, the change isn't going to happen. Our penultimate segment is a portion of my conversation with employment and human rights lawyer and winner of Alberta's Top 30 Under 30 Award for Professional Excellence in 2022, Sanya Chaudhry. Sanya provided us with some really good advice on sustainable lawyering. Considering our topic today, Sanya, my first question is very a loaded one. How are you? How are you feeling? You know, I'm feeling good. Uh, I'm feeling great, actually. Uh, how are you? <laughs> I'm very good. Thank you. Coming back from the holidays, I was on vacation, so it felt very good. Where did you take some time off? Uh, I just took time off to spend with my daughter. Uh, we all fell sick with the flu, so it was mostly just staying home, but it was nice to just stay home and spend time with her. I'm asking down now because we've been doing these podcasts a little while now with uh, different lawyers, and one of the conclusions that we have is lawyers must take their holidays <laughs> and their vacation days. That's what also Dr. Cadieux was telling us. So it's very good to know that except that you were sick, but that you took time with your daughter. But I unplugged. I didn't reply to any emails or do anything. So yeah. <laughs> that's good. You unplugged. That's very important. Well, before we talk about the sort of profession as lawyers we want to have, and we will do that during the podcast for sure. We will also talk a little bit about the article that you wrote in the Global Mail in December 2021, where you uh, shared your experience with mental health as well as intersectionality in the legal profession. And you also made a bunch of very interesting recommendations. And I will most, well, I would be delighted to go back to that a little bit. But before that, I'd like to talk about you, like how you are today and maybe first well you started in family and immigration law now you just started a new job right in january am i right mm -hmm. yeah okay good <laughs> can you tell us a little bit like how your own concern for your own mental well-being has impacted your career choices and the changes you made i can tell you that you know when you initially graduate law school your own mental health at least for me was not even close to top of my mind when I was searching for a position. For me, I moved from Vancouver to Calgary right upon graduation, and I was out of that normal articling recruit cycle. So all I cared was about getting an articling position. So when I was interviewing, it was just, take me. <laughs> I don't care what the culture in your firm is. Please just take me. And a lot of people are in that situation, right? So this power dynamic of being desperate to be hired and then being desperate to stay on, you know, for the firm to retain you as an associate, it, it, you know, you're afraid to show any signs of weakness, you're afraid to do anything or dis disclose anything that will make you less desirable as an associate. And it's, it's, it's damaging on, for mental health. Um, for me, my mental health, as well as microaggressions and the impact of them on my mental health have been, you know, a daily issue prior to the legal profession worsened <laughs> in higher education worsened in the legal profession uh, because you're just working twice as hard to prove yourself. So, you know, while I was articling, I, I got pregnant, I gave birth, I've had my first 
face-to-face direct Islamophobic incident. Uh, I, um, my mom passed away uh, six weeks after my daughter gave birth. So a lot was happening and, you know, it was really impacting my mental health. Plus I was just overworking, you know, I, I was so worried about going on mat leave that I worked myself so hard while pregnant, you know, like my mom came to visit before she passed. I, I obviously didn't know she was going to pass, but I spent no time with her. I didn't take her to visit bath or anything. I just kept working, you know, and all of this, you know, led to an increase in anxiety and depression, worsened by grief and postpartum depression, worsened by the billable hour because my desire was to exceed in it. You know, I'm very ambitious and worsened by the pressure uh, and stigma around speaking about your mental health. So I decided to make a change from that firm to a different small firm uh, that did family and immigration uh, I, I didn't really think about it. I was just desperate to do something to change because I wasn't feeling good. I was hoping that change would make me feel more fulfilled. But there, the same things were happening. You know, the billable hour really impacted me and my ambition really impacted me. And I was surrounded by well-meaning allies, but I just, you know, my anxiety and depression worsened. I was, I had no work-life balance whatsoever. I just wanted to build the most, get the best client reviews, but the work got too much. And, 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 you know, this time when I made the change, my mental health was at the very top of my mind. You know, I made the decision calmly, not as a desperate escape. Um, you know, I, I, I let my mentors know at the firm that I had to make a change because of my mental health. I was terrified that I would make a mistake on a file due to being overworked and terrified that I was failing as a mother to my only daughter. So I made the move. I, I joined a regulator as in-house conduct counsel. So I was still doing litigation, which I love. I was still in the realm of admin law, which I also love. So the two years I spent there were really great for my mental health, especially since the good thing from the pandemic was the option to work from home. <laughs> uh, and, you know, research has actually shown that working from home has positive impacts for on mental health for racialized individuals by kind of partially removing you from microaggressions. And so I was really happy there. And this most recent career transition in January that I, it, I guess this month that I made, it, it was so it was due to my passion for equity, diversity, and inclusion and looking for how I can do that in my legal practice, like without damaging my mental health. So yes, mental health was also top of mind uh, in, in, at this point. Uh, you know, when I was exploring returning to private practice, I actually was really honest and open and was having open and honest conversations about mental health, wellness, and work-life balance, but also my career ambitions with different firms. And at times that didn't work, you know, I wasn't the right fit, but I finally found a place that's you know, I was a right fit uh, here at Forte Workplace Law, doing employment, uh, labor and human rights, which is very in line with my EDI lens, but also at a firm that values wellness and wants to practice law in a way that views lawyers as humans and not just machines. You know, this time when I made this job switch, I was more intentional about my mental health and being really open to talking about how I burnt out in private practice and left. And then now I'm coming back after being at a regulator. And so, I mean, in addition to just like noticing red flags or noticing situations where there wasn't a fit, the most important thing that I noticed about Forte Workplace Law is that they really do practice law totally different. They really value wellness and they communicate that. And so I think law firms need to really 
communicate to their employees that we value wellness and we can have conversations about wellness. Without lawyers that are well, you cannot have quality work for your clients and you can't have a productive workforce at your firm. So it's kind of a no-brainer. At the law firm I'm at currently, they're really intentional about that. So like they'll notice if you're getting burnout, burnt out, you know, just from looking at your schedule or the timing on in which you're sending emails and things like that. And they'll check in on you, you know, to make sure are you okay? Is there anything you need? Um, but also the seniors are communicating their issues wellness as well. So in meetings, seniors will speak out about, you know, experiencing burnout with a particular type of practice group or a particular um, type of file. And so you're talking about wellness during practice group meetings and brainstorming together on what to do about burnout and wellness. You know, do we need to refer some of our files to other associates in the firm? Or do we need to refer the files out? Uh, maybe we have too much work. Or do we have more than, you know, do we have a really complicated file that has only one lawyer and really we should have two or we should have three because it's actually a really complicated file? Do we need to look into systems to make things more efficient? You know, like, so like having that there, and I've noticed that at this firm so far that, and 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 from all my talking with them and watching them on social media, that they really do value wellness. And like, it's not like we have the solution and everyone's well, but at least we're talking about it openly and we're trying to figure out um, how to be well and how to have, you know, holistic performance measures, you know, not just assessing you by how much you bill, but the quality of your work, the non-billable tasks you're doing, how you're helping the firm. Also, I think a lot of the mental health and wellness issues and stress that juniors face is due to lack of training. You really don't know how to do something and you're stressed and anxious about it and you're worried about being competent, but also you have no formal training or mentoring. So, you know, a firm having a formal mentoring program, and even if the firm doesn't have that many resources, just assigning a mentor to each junior so they know this is my point person that I can reach out to. I think that's really helpful. And that's also something that um, my current firm does. So training is important. And also, I think the issue of civility in the profession is really important, too. I feel like, you know, time has passed and the value on civility has gone down. Maybe something has changed in the way we're mentored that that's happening. So, you know, keeping um, your mind towards civility when you're mentoring uh, associates. So we continue being a civil profession or become more of a civil civil profession. Um, yeah. So, you know, there's lo- lots of things that firms can do. And, and I think the key to start is, is communicating that this is a value. This is really important to the firm. We're not just paying it lip service. We actually mean it. And we're actually willing to put resources towards it. We finish with Glenn Hickerson from the CBA Wellbeing Subcommittee who provided us with a roundup of some of the well-being resources at the CBA. How do you think we can incentivize law firm leaders and others to take the mental health and well-being of their employees, associates, and partners more seriously? Uh, You know, we've got three things going on. Law firms in particular, but legal workplaces in general, have had a long history of a workplace culture that I say is a lot less like uh, how to win friends and influence people and a lot more like Game of Thrones. You know, much more peer-to-peer competition 
right from the time you write on LSAT exam, uh, you're set up for the idea that success comes with beating your peers. And let's just stipulate for a moment, and sounding again kind of like a lawyer here, but let's just stipulate that argument that that's worked. The problem is three things. One, the supply of great lawyers and great candidates is not what it once was. There's greater competition for good lawyers out there. Secondly, you're recruiting from a generation, you know, people who were born in the 1990s or 2000s, um, who were raised not to put up with being exploited for a long period of time. That um, I think most people who are old like me uh, have realized, have noticed that younger people don't put up with the stuff we put up with and good on them. And, and the third problem that law firms have in just continuing on as things were is we just have had a massive real life, real time experiment in what it's like not to go into a lousy office. <laughs> um, and it was called the pandemic and people have worked from home and, uh, and I, there's lots of problems and bad things and challenges with working from home, but I, people have also noticed that there's a lot of good stuff there. And, um, and so, you know, if you're a law firm who is dedicated to pitting one lawyer against another in a, in a competition to succeed, you got to watch out that you're not, um, by doing that, continuing to put yourself out of the, the marketplace for recruiting good lawyers and or having your best people leave because why work there? Can you tell us about some of the resources and activities of the CBA focusing on mental health and well-being? We have got uh, a lot. I mean, it's the, there's the short answer, but the we've got a series called the Well-Being Hour that covers a variety of topics and builds out all kinds of solutions that, uh, and a great deal of it, unsurprisingly, is already in response to things that are outlined in the report. One of the things that the report does, or the recommendations certainly say, is that perhaps our resources, like everybody else's resources, should get organized in such a way that it's easy to spot what's available based on the, the concern or the problem, or the issue that's that's at hand. Um, so we'll certainly be, that's something we've already got, but we'll still be working on it. If you're looking for something a little bit more fun, then the, we've got a, a monthly advice column called Dear Advi, and that's at, actually all of this is at www.cva.org forward slash sections forward slash wellness dash subcommittee. Uh, hopefully there'll be links in the in the show notes, but um, uh, the uh, there will be something that uh, that you can get it get to. But you can find the well being hour and Dear Advi on our uh, on our page. You can also find a CPD course that we uh, have, and all of those, by the way, are free. Uh, not just free to CBA members, but they're free uh, thanks to our sponsor, Lawyers Financial. And the other thing that we've got on that same page is contact information for every lawyer assistance program across the country. Um, and, and behind the scenes, uh, one of the things that we've been doing 
And of course, we're going to continue to do and we're going to do um, uh, with this study and its findings in mind is we, we support the work of the frontline workers in the lawyer assistance programs in every jurisdiction. So we, uh, you know, we offer uh, continuing uh, professional development for those uh, people. We offer them opportunities for them to exchange good ideas uh, and, and that uh, that sort of uh, benefit. And so we do that behind the scenes. Obviously, that's not something that's a, a front-facing uh, service that the CBA provides. Beyond that, if you're, you know, to the extent of what will we be doing, I see the people that are in our profession that realize there's an issue that needs to be resolved as our customers. You know, you're the managing partner or you are the, you know, human resources person or you're just an interested person in a law firm uh, or a, you know, workplace. And you're looking for a couple of things. One, a list of things that you, that your, your organization could do in order to make it uh, a, a friendlier place to work for. And secondly, ammo. You're looking for a way to convince the people that are in your firm that maybe don't see that there's an issue, that this really is a problem. So customers, they're, uh, watch this space because there's going to be even more for you. Um, but it, it, the, the, you know, the business case for managing lawyers' mental health well is almost irresistible. This is The Every Lawyer, presented by the Canadian Bar Association. Thanks for listening, and feel free to subscribe and reach out to us anytime at podcasts at cba.org. And take care of yourself. Bye.